First song that I learned in Sunday school growing up, doubtless the same for many of you, went something like this. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. I seriously considered asking Mike to sing that this week, (laughs) if for no other reason than to see his reaction. The thought of Mike up on stage marching in place and awkwardly swinging his arms makes me happy, (laughs) and I suspect that it does you as well. At any rate, I suppose it could be a good way to get the blood flowing on a cold November morning. Although I didn't know it at the time, that song does, however, quite effectively express my thesis in this morning's sermon, expresses Paul's point at the end of Romans chapter 2. I don't know who it was who originally composed those lyrics, but I suspect that it was a Gentile, and I'm quite certain that it has been Gentile Sunday school teachers who have been teaching it to Gentile children for decades, which means that those of us of a certain generation who have lustily belted out this refrain whilst stomping our feet and waving our arms and grinning like fools, have been implicitly affirming the point of today's text, which is that being a true Jew, a true child of Abraham, is not a matter of birth. It's not a matter of possessing external covenant signs like the law of Moses, or the physical circumcision. It is rather a matter of new birth and of the obedience of faith and of the circumcision of the heart. To put it in blunt terms, this means that an ethnic Jew who traces his lineage back to Abraham who reads Torah in Hebrew, who gathers each Friday night or Saturday morning at Temple Israel or any other Jewish synagogue around the country and around the world for Sabbath services, is not for any of those reasons a true Jew in Paul's conception of the word as one who is in a special, saving, covenantal relationship with God. And it means that we Gentiles who have gathered this morning to worship Jesus as Messiah and Lord, who trust in Jesus alone for atonement and for justifying righteousness, who live before God, rendering the obedience of faith, are in fact true Jews, the true sons of Abraham, the true heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, the true Israel of God. Now, what I just said would be considered wildly anti-Semitic by a Jewish person, and even by a significant number of Christians who come from a more hyper-dispensational bent, men like John Hagee, for instance. But I want to defend myself against the charge of anti-Semitism for a moment by just reminding you of a few points. Number one, the text we're going to study this morning in Romans chapter 2 was written by an Orthodox Jew, namely Paul. And it would be very strange, not to mention inaccurate, to accuse Paul of anti-Semitism. Number two, 
What I just said does not deny the special place of ethnic Israel in redemptive history, whether we're talking about the past, Paul's going to affirm that in Romans 3 and Romans 9, or whether we're talking about the future, depending upon your take on Romans 11. And number three, my exclusion of ethnic Jews, the ethnic Jews that I just described from the Abrahamic covenant and from the true Israel of God, a phrase that comes from Galatians 6.16, has nothing whatsoever to do with their ethnic identity. It has everything to do with one's relationship to Christ by faith and the inward operation of the Spirit upon one's heart. In other words, an ethnic Jew who does not believe in Jesus and is not born of the Spirit is not, according to Paul, a true Jew. And he is excluded from the covenant. An ethnic Gentile who does believe in Jesus and is born of the Spirit, is a true Jew and is included in the covenant. An ethnic Gentile who does not believe in Jesus and is not born of the Spirit is not a true Jew and is excluded from the covenant. And finally, an ethnic Jew who does believe in Jesus and is born of the Spirit is a true Jew and is included in the covenant. Does that make it clear? It's not about ethnicity, not according to Paul. It's not about possessing the law of Moses. It's not about being able to trace your lineage back to Abraham. It's not about being circumcised in the flesh or having any other of the covenantal markers, keeping the Passover, keeping the feasts, and keeping the Sabbath days. It's about something else entirely. Romans 2, 17-29, and this sermon can no more be considered anti-Jewish than it can be considered anti-Gentile because ethnic identity has nothing to do with it, which is precisely the point that Paul is making. Ethnic identity or external covenant signs are no guarantee of one's inclusion in the people of God. Now, more than likely, none of you woke up this morning wondering whether or not you were a true Israelite. It's not a question that tends to pop into our heads. And it's to be expected because you probably, by default, conceive of Jewishness in ethnic terms. And for all of us, so far as I'm aware, the answer is, ethnically speaking, no, I'm not an Israelite, no, I'm not Jewish. But true Jewishness is not a matter of ethnicity. It's not a matter of anything physical at all. In Romans 2.28, Paul makes this clear when he says that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. By the way, merely is not in the Greek text. Paul's saying, you're not a Jew if you're one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from man, but from God. So why should you, a Gentile, I'm assuming, care about whether or not you are a true Jew, a true child of Abraham? Well, I'm going to answer that question from Paul's own words in Galatians chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, they'll be up on the screen. But let me just 
Let me just read three brief passages from Galatians 3 to show why it matters and why it matters eternally. Galatians 3, 7, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And finally, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the way Paul thinks. Paul, the most orthodox Jew that he knew, according to Philippians chapter 3, has radically redefined what it means to be a Jew, what it means to be a child of Abraham, what it means to be an heir of the covenant. In Galatians 3, Paul speaks of a promise which God made to Abraham, a blessing, an inheritance granted to Abraham and to his offspring. What is this promise? What is this covenant? Well, this is a huge topic in biblical theology, and so in order not to get sidetracked from our main purpose this morning, I'm just going to summarize the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic blessing that Paul says comes to those who are of faith, to those who are the children of Abraham by faith. And it's comprised of four components. Number one, a people. God promised to make of Abraham a great nation, Genesis 12, 2, having more descendants than the stars of the sky, Genesis 15, 5. Number two, it includes a place. This people will possess a land, an inheritance given them by God himself. Under the old covenant, this promised land was the land of Canaan, according to Genesis 15.7 and 17.8. But under the new covenant, this promised land is nothing less than the new heaven and the new earth, according to Romans 4.13 and Hebrews 11.10. So the Abrahamic blessing is the promise of a people. It's the promise of a place. Thirdly, it's the promise of God's presence. The cornerstone of the Abrahamic covenant is the promise that God himself will dwell in the midst of his people, that they will be his people and he himself will be their God. This is spoken of in Leviticus 26.12. It's reiterated in 2 Corinthians 6.16 and is consummated in Revelation 21.3. Finally, there's the promise of pardon for sin. A holy God will not dwell in the midst of a sinful people. And so there was, along with the promised blessing, a promise of justification, a promise of a righteousness given, a promise of forgiveness of sins 
through faith. This is exactly what Abraham received when he believed God's promise. Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, 6, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. A verse which Paul is going to expound upon at length in Romans chapter 4. So the promise which God made to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring. Now who his offspring is is going to be the point of this text. But that promise was comprised of four components. There was the promise of a people, the promise of a place, the promise of God's presence, and the promise of pardon for sin. And this this covenant was conditional. It was conditioned upon faith, Genesis 15, 6, and obedience, Genesis 17, 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham and he said, I am... Your God, walk before me and be blameless. Or, as Paul calls it, the covenant is conditioned upon the obedience of faith. Those who are brought by the Spirit out of their self-seeking rebellion and brought into the obedience of faith are included in the covenant. They become part of God's people. They become possessors of the new heaven and the new earth where they will enjoy the very presence of God himself and receive full pardon for every sin. In short, to be an heir of the covenant is to be saved. To be a child of Abraham is to be saved. So I return to the question, are you a true Jew? Are you a true child of Abraham? Are you a part of the true Israel of God? Eternity hangs upon answering that question accurately and biblically. If you're not a child of Abraham, you're not getting into the promised land. If you're not a true Jew, you're not inheriting the blessing. Now we are in the midst of a prolonged section of Romans. It runs from Romans 1.18 on to 3.20. And in this section, Paul is indicting all humanity under sin. In a couple of weeks, we're going to get to Romans 3.20, where Paul will say, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's, that's Paul's whole point in this chapter and a half, these two chapters really, is to put every person in every place, at every time, everywhere, under sin, under judgment, under condemnation, so that he can come behind in Romans 3.21 and declare that now there is a righteousness apart from the law available through faith in Jesus Christ. He's setting us up for the gospel by putting every one of us under sin. In Romans 1.18-32, Paul charged the pagan Gentiles with suppressing the knowledge of God that was available to them in all creation. By rejecting their creator and engaging in idolatry, the consequence which God has invoked upon them is that he has given them over to all manner of depravity described in that chapter. In chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 8, Paul turns his argument against the outwardly religious, the outwardly moral, churchgoers, synagogue attenders, and the like. He particularly has in view the Jews, 
but by extension the church as well. And the things he charges the Jews with, he could just as easily charge the church with, namely hypocrisy. Though our knowledge of God is more extensive than the pagan, since we have the law of God written in a book for our examination, yet we have suppressed that truth which we have all the same. We've presumed upon God's kindness. We've worshipped the idols of our own hearts, which has led us to commit the very same sins. In other words, just having access to the Word of God does not place someone in a special saving relationship to God. Just having a form of religion, an external conformity to a standard of morality, does not make us righteous in God's sight. The point of this section thus far is clearly expressed in verse 13, which we studied last week. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, while in Romans 2, 1-16, Paul has been addressing the religious and the moral generally, beginning in verse 17, Paul has in mind the Jews particularly. And this is going to continue all the way through chapter 3 and verse 8. This week and next, Paul is going to be dealing with Jewish-Gentile identities. And he will summarize this whole section of Romans, we'll get to it in two weeks, with a railing indictment of all humanity for its sin, rebellion against God in verses 9 through 20. So in today's passage, in Romans 2, 17 to 29, Paul is speaking directly to his Jewish brethren, and he has one point to make. You are not a true member of the covenant people of God just because you have the law and are circumcised. True saving membership in Israel requires something far more intense, something far more internal, something you cannot do for or of yourselves. What that is and what it means for us will become clear as we work our way through this passage. Now, it's clear from the book of Acts that Paul preached in synagogue after synagogue, from, from town after town, city after city, along his missionary journeys. And he followed his ministry modus operandi, which was to take the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek. That's what he did in every town and every city. He went straight to the synagogue, he, he ministered there until he got kicked out, and then he went to the Gentile marketplace. Paul's synagogue preaching seems to have had two primary aims. First, he intended to demonstrate from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And second, he intended to disabuse the Jews of their claim to a special relationship with God simply on the basis of an external covenant identity. So what we have in today's passage is likely a summary of the message that Paul would have preached from town to town, from synagogue to synagogue, all over the Roman world. And as one might guess, this message was not well received. What Paul says in this passage is identical to the point that he's going to make later in Romans 9, where he will say that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
So as you can see, Paul makes a distinction between being a physical Israelite and being a true Israelite. He makes a distinction between, between being a physical child of Abraham and a true child of Abraham. Only the true Israel, only the true children of Abraham will receive the promised inheritance as the people of God. Well, by and large, the Jews to whom Paul preached made no such distinction, although the Old Testament itself does. And in verses 17 to 29, Paul attacks two foundations of the Jewish claim to be in special covenant relationship to God, their possession of the law and the practice of physical circumcision. In verses 17 to 24, Paul says that possessing the law is of no value unless one actually keeps it. And in verses 25 to 29, Paul argues that physical circumcision is of no value without the spiritual reality to which that physical sign pointed. So let's look at these two arguments that he makes one at a time. Paul begins by attacking the first Jewish hope. Basically what we have here. The Jews had a hope of being the people of God that was erected upon two pillars, and Paul's going to come along, and in 13 verses, he's going to knock both pillars out from underneath them. The first pillar was that they thought that by virtue of possessing the law of God, that they were the people of God. Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. Just because you have the law of God does not make you the people of God because it's not the hearers of the word who will be justified, but the doers of the word. Let's look at verses 17 and 20. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now pause there and let's break that apart. Okay, these these verses identify the way the Jews perceived themselves. Number one, Paul says they call themselves Jews. If you call yourself a Jew, meaning that they belonged to, to Israel, the special covenant people of God. In other words, if you think that you're the people of God, dot, dot, dot. Secondly, he says they rely on the law, meaning that they, they rested their hope upon the fact that God had given to them and not to others, to them his law, that this was a signal of God's election of them above all others on the face of the earth. Well, as I said earlier, the Old Testament prophets attacked this false confidence, particularly centuries earlier by the prophet Micah, who said of Israel, Micah chapter 3 and verse 11, it's Israel's heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on, same word, they rely on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Centuries before Paul comes along, the prophet Micah is seeing the same false confidence infiltrating the people of Israel. They accept bribes. Their priests are hirelings teaching for a price. Their prophets are practicing divination out in the desert. And yet they don't think that they'll be liable to judgment. Why? Is not the Lord in the midst of us? Are we not his people? 
Has he not given to us his law? They boast in God, Paul says, which is not in itself wrong. In fact, Paul commends such a thing in 1 Corinthians 1.31 when he says, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. But there's all the difference in the world between boasting in God out of humility and in awe of his grace, which he has shown you, and boasting in your privileged position before God as a result of your own attainments. Leon Morris, the New Testament scholar, said that the Jews' boast was in the God whom he knew and whom he thought nobody else knew. But he did not take sufficiently into consideration the character of God. God is the judge, the judge of Jew as well as of Gentile. And then he quotes some prophets to that effect. Next, Paul says they know God's will and they prove what is excellent because they're instructed in the law. The Jew prided himself on his moral discernment. Unlike those pagan Gentiles among the nations, the Jews knew God's will. They knew what morality was. They knew what marriage meant. They knew better than to worship idols. They knew better than to fornicate in temples and to practice and participate in all of those ungodly, unseemly, idolatrous practices of the pagans. Or did they? You can feel that Paul's setting them up for the fall here. It's not enough to have the law. It's not even enough to know the law. One must actually keep the law to be counted among the covenant people of God. And the law, as we know and as we have seen, goes far deeper than not bowing before idols and not fornicating in temples. He says they're sure that they are a guide to the blind. They're a light to those in darkness. They're an instructor of the foolish. They're a teacher of children. You know, the Jews recognized that they had a responsibility that with their privilege, having the law, came the responsibility of teaching the law. And according to Paul, they relished this role because it affirmed in their own minds their moral superiority to those pagans who were blind and darkened and childish and foolish. And what was the basis of their perceived superiority? Paul says it's that they believe that they had in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, which is true. Being chosen by God to possess the law of God should have created within their hearts a deep sense of gratitude and humility, but instead it bred arrogance and fostered self-importance and self-righteousness in their hearts. And such arrogance, such confidence, says Paul, is unwarranted. Because even though they possess the law, verses 17 to 20, they don't keep the law, verses 21 to 24. Paul's been setting up his Jewish audience, and now in verses 21 to 24, the hammer falls. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He set them up 
Now Paul pulls the rug out from underneath his Jewish audience by means of four consecutive questions meant to reveal their bankruptcy in their claim to be the covenant people of God. Essentially, Paul accuses them of hypocrisy. You teach others, but you don't teach yourself. And then he provides three examples, stealing, adultery, and robbing temples. Now, the first two are self-explanatory, but what on earth does Paul mean by robbing temples? Well, the word is used only here in all of the New Testament, and there's at least three possibilities for what Paul means. He could literally mean robbing temples and stealing from them offerings or valuables which could be found there. This was a common enough practice in the ancient world. It shows up in Acts chapter 19 when Paul's accused of doing such a thing in Ephesus. But there's little evidence to suggest that the Jews who abhorred idols actually participated in robbing temples. Number two, it could refer to the sacrilege of profiting from idolatry. In other words, though not participating directly in idol worship, certain unscrupulous Jews throughout the pagan world may have profited from idol worship by either selling idols or having some other form of income associated with idolatry. Or number three, it could refer metaphorically to withholding from God what is his due, uh, robbing God as it were, which is the way some take it. But this would make sense only if stealing and adultery were also metaphorical. In other words, a metaphor for greed and lust which is a possibility. But regardless of how we understand these infractions, whether Paul's talking about stealing, adultery, and actually robbing temples, or whether he's talking about greed, lust, and blasphemy, for instance, insincere worship, or some combination of the two, Paul's point is clear. Even though Jews have the law, even though they know the law, Even though they boast in the law, they dishonor God because they break the law and they fail to keep the law. As a result, he says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them, which is a quote from Isaiah 52.5. Okay, how's this? How are the nations blaspheming God because of the Jews' failure to keep the law? Well, being the only nation to possess the law of God was a tremendous privilege, The God the Gentiles knew only through creation and conscience, the Jews knew by divine revelation. And surely this should have made some difference in the way that they behaved. Surely this should have made them different from the surrounding nations. It should have made them a holy people. It should have made them a light shining in the midst of the darkness. But you've read the Old Testament. Was this the case? Is it true that Israel was a light in the darkness? Is it true that they were substantively different from the nations that surround them? No. In fact, that's the most common indictment of the prophets, is that you behave just like the pagans. Rather than leading the nations to the saving knowledge of God, the Jews caused the name of God to be blasphemed among the nations by their irreverent, immoral behavior. Though the Jews had the law, they did not keep the law. Consequently, says Paul, they were no different than the lawless nations which surrounded them, which is precisely Paul's point. In verses 25 to 27, Paul then moves to undercut the second plank 
or pillar of Jewish confidence. The fact that they were circumcised with the sign that God gave Israel, signifying that they were his special covenant people. Again, Paul says, not so. Just because you're circumcised in the flesh does not mean you're a part of the people of God. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. That's the kind of stuff that got Paul beaten out of synagogues. Circumcision was given to Abraham in Genesis 17 as a sign of God's covenant with him and with his descendants. Again, the huge question looming over this text that we'll answer in just a moment is, who did God mean by your descendants? But we're not there yet. The Jewish hope could be expressed like this. Circumcision marks us off as belonging to the people of God who are the heirs of the Abrahamic promises. We're circumcised, therefore we're blessed with Abraham. But according to Paul, this is not the case, and their confidence is unfounded. Like all covenant signs, circumcision was a visible representation of an invisible promise or reality. In the case of circumcision, this invisible reality, the Old Testament calls the circumcision of the heart. And it refers to a radical internal transformation of the heart that results in faith in God's promises and a life of faith, namely the obedience of faith. It results in a new inclination towards obedience to God's commands. It is what the New Testament calls regeneration or being born again. In other words, When Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus doesn't understand and Jesus chastises him and says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? What he's saying is, new birth is not something new. It was something that was commanded in the Old Testament and it was referenced by that phrase, the circumcision of the heart. In other words, Nicodemus should have known that entrance into the kingdom of God does not come through physical circumcision. It comes through spiritual circumcision. It comes through being born again. And so apart from this inward regeneration, apart from these inward spiritual realities of new birth and faith and a new affection for God and a new desire for obedience... Paul says the outward physical sign is absolutely meaningless. Might as well not have it. In this final paragraph, Paul makes two radically unpopular assertions. First, in verse 25, he says that a circumcised Jew who does not keep the law may as well be uncircumcised, with the implication being that he's no better off than a pagan Gentile, that is, one who is excluded from God's covenant people. That's an astounding claim. His circumcision has become meaningless if the spiritual reality it is meant to convey is missing. 
Then in verse 26, he flips it around and he says that an uncircumcised Gentile who keeps the law will be regarded as if he were a circumcised Jew, that is, a member of the covenant people of God. And just in case we miss the point, Paul elaborates again in verse 27 by saying that that uncircumcised Gentile who keeps the law will rise up and condemn the circumcised Jew who breaks the law on the day of judgment. One crucial point is in order here, and we've been playing around with this for weeks now. If we're going to understand Paul's argument, we need to understand that when he speaks in Romans 2 of obeying the law, verse 25, of keeping the precepts of the law, verse 26, of keeping the law, verse 27, here's what he does not mean. He does not mean keeping the law in perfect righteousness all your life and thereby meriting your own justification and eternal glory. That's not what Paul means. If that were possible, there would be no need for the circumcision of the heart, there would be no need for the atoning death of Christ, and there would be no need for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So Paul means something different by keeping the law than that. Rather, Paul means... What he talks about in Romans 8, 4, he means fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law by walking by faith in the grace of Christ and the power of the Spirit who enables us to love God with increasing sincerity and affection. He means the obedience of faith, which is the goal of the gospel. A heart which is purposefully following after Christ by faith purposefully, though not perfectly, following Christ, obeying Christ by faith through grace in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul means that faith-accessed, grace-motivated, spirit-empowered holiness without which none of us will see the Lord. He means that when a Gentile is brought to the obedience of faith through the gospel of Christ, that Gentile becomes a true Israelite. And when a Jew walks in faithlessness, rejecting Jesus as his Messiah, he is no child of Abraham, even though he possesses the law and is circumcised in his flesh. What we've just covered over the last half hour or so is radical teaching. It's why Paul was so unpopular amongst the Jews of his day. It radically redefines what it means to belong to the people of God. Paul brings this point home with this powerful summation in verse 27 through 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit and not by the letter. And his praise is not from man but from God. Membership in Israel, the true Israel of God, is not a matter of physical birth or religious ritual. It is a matter of new birth, which happens by the Spirit and not by the works of the law. In other words, the letter. This message would, does, and often did drop like an atomic bomb upon a Jewish audience absolutely laying waste to their most cherished confidences and completely undoing generations-long self-identity. But we're not Jewish. 
I'd be surprised if there were someone here who was. So I want to conclude this morning's message by making three applications to the Gentile church, namely to this church, particularly to you. Here's the first application. What Paul said regarding first century Jews could also be said regarding 21st century Christians. Let me change a few words around and you'll see what I mean. I'm going to take verses 27 to 29, substitute a few words, and I think you'll get the point. For no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is baptism outward and physical. But a Christian is one inwardly, and baptism is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. Does that make a little bit more sense? Does that hit home? Baptism is the sign of the new covenant which replaced circumcision as the sign of the old covenant. And I want to tell you, it is indeed of value. That's what Paul says regarding circumcision. It is indeed of value, verse 25, if you believe, if you are obedient to the faith. But if you are disobedient to the faith, your baptism becomes unbaptism. If you are baptized, but your life does not demonstrate the obedience that comes from true faith, you might as well be unbaptized because all you did was get wet. So examine your heart, beloved. Being baptized in water means nothing if you have not been baptized by the Spirit. Being a member of the church is meaningless if you are not joined to Christ by faith. Knowing the Word of God means nothing if you do not believe and obey the Word of God. This text is a warning against false confidence which can arise in an external practice of religion. So don't shrug off this warning this morning saying, oh, he's talking about Jew-Gentile stuff that doesn't apply to me. Don't set your confidence in your Bible knowledge, in your baptism, or in your belonging to this church because all of those things, indeed they are of value if you are obedient to the faith. Number two, becoming obedient to the faith is not a work of the law. This is going to be a point that recurs so often throughout Romans. And my prayer is that it will become so ingrained in your heart and your mind that it just becomes part of your worldview, the way that you see the Scriptures and the way that you see all of life. In other words, I pray that you would never divorce faith from works, but always keep them in their proper order. Faith, then works. The works that come from faith. Now, I get this point from verse 29 where Paul says, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Let me change some words out in there and I think it will make more sense. A Christian is one inwardly and baptism is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by works. And his praise is not from man, but from God. So what does Paul mean by the Spirit and not by the letter? Well, Paul's very fond of, of contrasting the Spirit and the letter, the letter and the Spirit. And when he contrasts them, what Paul has in mind is a contrast between a work of the law 
and a work of the Spirit. Something done through self-effort versus something done by God through sovereign grace. What Paul is telling them this morning is that there is absolutely nothing that they could do to bring about the circumcision of the heart. It's not a work. And what I would say to you is that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to bring about new birth. It's not a work. As Jesus said, the wind blows where it will. And you don't see where it's coming from and you don't see where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You cannot work for it, you cannot earn it, you cannot call it down from heaven at your command. It is the sovereign work of the sovereign spirit of God. And if that leaves you feeling helpless, good. That's where God wants you. When you understand that you are totally helpless to change your own heart, to turn yourself from a Gentile into a Jew, then and only then has the law had its proper effect and have you begun to understand the gospel. Now you should cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ and trust him to circumcise your heart with the scalpel of the Spirit, and I promise you he will do it. That's why he came and died and rose again. So point number two, you must be born again and you can't give birth to yourself. What are you going to do when the Bible commands something of you that you can't bring about? Let me ask you a question. Where do you turn when you need the impossible done? You turn to the sovereign God. That's the application of this passage. If you want to become real, if you want to become true, if you want to be genuine, if you want to be baptized by the Spirit, if you want to be circumcised in the heart, if you want to belong to the people of Abraham, there is absolutely nothing, nothing whatsoever, not a single thing that you can do to bring that about this morning. So what are you going to do? Cast yourself upon the mercy of God and trust Him to do it. Third, If you are obedient to the faith, then you are a true Jew, a true child of Abraham, a part of the true Israel of God, and an heir of all of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. There are enormous implications of this truth for biblical theology, for biblical eschatology. But I want to end this morning by simply stating what God has promised to Abraham, and if you are obedient to the faith, what God has promised to you. Number one, he's promised a people, a family of nations more numerous than the stars of the sky. Number two, he's promised this people a place, a land where God would bless them and dwell in their midst. Number three, he's promised them his own presence. They will be my people and I will be their God and I will dwell in the midst of them. And finally, he has promised pardon. He will forgive their sins and remember their iniquities no more. Entrance into this covenant is conditioned upon the obedience of faith, a condition which Christ himself fulfills in his saving work and by the sovereign grace and power of his spirit. So if you would inherit those blessings, you must be a true Jew. You must be a part of the true Israel of God. You must become a true child of Abraham. Now you know what it means to sing, Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them by faith. And so are you if you're of faith. So let's all praise the Lord.